All right. We want to look in the book of Ezekiel this morning, and I would ask you to start with me in looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, by way of just opening. <clears throat> Ezekiel has been called by some the prophet of the glory of the Lord. And that is, I think, a proper and appropriate name for this prophet of God because the concept of the glory of God seems to really mark the whole of his prophecies. His prophecies begin in chapters 1 through 3 with a, a display of God's glory. That's particularly seen in the vision Ezekiel has in chapter 1. And then uh, that vision frames really the book of Ezekiel. And I'd like for us to think about the book of Ezekiel together in some measure against the backdrop of that. And uh, as we see this prophet beholding the glory of God, may God grant us to behold his glory as well. And looking together. Let's read there beginning at verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. Well, let's just again bow and ask our God's blessing on his word. Father, we do bow before you in the name of our Lord Jesus, thy worthy son. We are grateful for the privilege to gather with thy people. We thank you, Father, for the blessings that you give us so freely. You load us daily with benefits, as the psalmist said. We thank you for that. Father, we thank you that among those blessings you have given us your word. We pray, Father, that you would grant your mercies to us as we open this portion of your word of truth. And we ask that in that, Father, you'd glorify yourself. And as we read of what you gave to Ezekiel by revelation, Father, you would grant us to behold your glory in a, a real way as we look together at what you've given in your word here. Father, we ask you to honor your son in our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we look at these words that open the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel gives several time references that mark what is taking place. And as he speaks of the reality of what he experienced there as a captive in Babylon, Ezekiel was one of those who had been taken, removed from the land of Judah, from Jerusalem, and uh, with many others, among them King Jehoiakim, who's mentioned there in verse 2. It's the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. There were several removals that marked the people of God. In the days of Jehoiakim, there was one after Jehoiakim. Uh, in the days of uh, uh, after Jehoiakim, there was the final removal we think about that took place under King Zedekiah. They were removed to Babylon because of their sin. And the upshot of that was something that God had told them would happen in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. God had warned them if they continued in their rebellion against him as he brought judgment and chastisement that ultimately they would be removed from the land. And Ezekiel, who was one no doubt very faithful to God, one who knew the Lord and uh, becomes a prophet of God. He was of the priestly line we read about in these words, verses 1 through 3, verse 3 mentions that. Ezekiel experienced the reality of what God brought in chastisement upon Judah. And so often that is the case 
God's people in living among a sinful people, there's fallout, it seems, from the sin and rebellion of others that impacts their lives. And that was true of Ezekiel's life here. What happened in Judah impacted him. And that is something that we, I think, see in our own land today. The fallout of what we see of rebellion toward God, it has an impact on us. And even God's chastening on a country because of their sin. That chastening still impacts his people also. And uh, there are some negative effects that come with that. And Ezekiel's experiencing that. But, but over against that backdrop, God provides something that Ezekiel makes reference to there in verse 1. He speaks of how the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. And then he speaks of that as well in the uh, words of verse 3. The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans. That's, of course, Babylon, by the river Kibar. And the hand of the Lord was there upon him. These words speak of the, uh, the blessing of God. Even though he's in that foreign land, God gives to him visions of himself. He sees the glory of God. And uh, that's something we should bear in mind, I believe, in the midst of a, a world that's under sin. Thank God he's not kept from displaying his glory in us and to us. And we can have the experience of that. As we think about what Ezekiel says here about his experience in Babylon, I want you to keep your place, please, in Ezekiel 1 and turn back with me to the book of Psalms and notice some words from Psalm 137. They may be familiar to you. Uh, sometimes quoted, <clears throat> but these words of Psalm 137 are really a lament. Some of the psalms that we have are psalms of praise. Some are, some are psalms of, of repentance. Uh, among those psalms of praise, there are psalms of celebration. But there are also psalms of lament that we have within the book of Psalms. And they uh, mark really a, a plaintive cry in the heart of God's servant, the singer, the psalmist. And that's what we have in Psalm 137. If you will, notice those opening words of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? We could read the rest of the psalm, but notice the, the attitude of the psalmist. This, no doubt, is one of the Levitical choristers in those choirs of the Levites that David had uh, put together. As the, first, as the book of First Chronicles records, David had assembled uh, those of Asaph and Jedithon and others to be the singers who would hymn the praise of God. Many of the songs sung were those that God gave David. David by inspiration to use in the worship of Israel. And, and as the psalmist has been removed now, like Ezekiel, we don't have any record as to the specific removal time, but as he's been removed while in Babylon, he speaks of the lament, the, the mourning and sorrow that gripped him. Now it's understandable. You know, he remembers Zion as it speaks of there. And in remembering Zion, he thinks of those times of praise in the house of God and the times of worship and the fact that now he's removed from that. He's in a strange land, a foreign land. And his response is, 
is, is those who would ask of them, and this points out something about the, the worship of God in the temple, but their captors, the Babylonians who had taken them captive, asked them, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Uh, that says something about the worship and the praise of God that apparently had a had a, a hearsay or a rumor effect throughout the, the Middle East in the time of, of the psalmist. Uh, the Psalms of Zion, so well known apparently in the worship of God. And to me it speaks of the, of the reality of who our God is over against the gods of the world that are no gods at all. I love way Psalm 115, Psalm 135, put eyes have they, but they see not. Ears have they, but they hear. Mouths have they, but they speak not. And they that worship them are like unto them. They become dumb idols like their gods. But you and I who know the living God, we have a true worship because we know the true and living God. And, and that's something that flows. But, but here it's been stanched. It's been stopped because of the fact that he's in a foreign land. The question's asked there in verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And I think the best answer to give to that is whose song is it? It's the Lord's song. And He's God everywhere. And the psalmist, it seems, was grappling, was struggling with that in his lamentation. But over against that, Ezekiel in that foreign land, in that strange setting, Ezekiel sees visions of God. Ezekiel sees the heavens open. And the word of God comes expressly unto him, as verse 3 says in Ezekiel 1. So these words point out God's goodness. And something else that's said in the last part of verse 3, Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord was there upon him. That, of course, is a phrase that we find uh, especially, it seems, associated with the captivity or the the post-exilic period after the captivity. You'll remember that both Ezra and Nehemiah will speak of the good hand of their God upon them. And here, the hand of the Lord is upon Ezekiel there during the captivity. It's interesting that David uses the word hand of the Lord, though, in a negative way in Psalm 32. When he is confessing his sin in Psalm 51 after God had brought forgiveness to him and he celebrates that in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. And uh, as David celebrates that, he speaks of what God had done. He says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. That's Psalm 32 verse 3. And then he explains that. He said... Inside, my body was in revolt because of my sin. I I kept silence. I wouldn't confess it. I wouldn't deal with it. And and David says, as he explains that, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. He speaks of God's hand being heavy on him. And that, of course, speaks of the, the way we don't want the hand of the Lord to be upon us. Ezekiel experiences it in a gracious way, much like Ezra and Nehemiah speak of it. But... The good news is even when God's hand is heavy upon us, it's still upon us. I don't want His hand not to be upon me when I need His hand to be upon me even when it's heavy. And David was, I'm sure, thankful for that. God's chasing hand upon him. Uh, I love the way a preacher friend of mine expressed it. I may have shared this with you before, but Elder Dennis Ward, a pastor up in, black brother up in uh, Lexington, Kentucky in his last years, Brother Ward told about how his good mammy would discipline him. Uh, he is single mother, uh, si- single single mom. Uh, she went back to 
uh, there in Kentucky to be with her parents in those days. Brother Ward told about the, the discipline his good mammy would give him, his grandmother. I remember him saying one time she told him, boy, I'll stomp a mud hole in you and walk it dry. <laughs> now that's discipline. <laughs> he said, though, he learned something about good mammy. When she was disciplining him, he learned not to pull away because when he did, it gave her more striking room. He said he found the best thing he could do when she was disciplining him was wrap himself around her legs. She just couldn't get a good strike at him, you know. When we feel the chastened hand of our God, that's the best thing to do. Don't pull away. Wrap yourself around your father's legs. And David speaks about the hand of God being heavy upon him. But here in Ezekiel 1 in verse 3, Ezekiel speaks of the hand of the Lord being there upon him. And that's in a good way, for he sees visions of God. He is seeing the heavens open, and as well, uh, the Lord's word is coming expressly to him. And that's good news in a land of captivity. That's something to sustain us. One more point before we move on to look at a little bit of chapter 1 against the backdrop of these opening verses. Ezekiel speaks in those first words of verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month. There's been some question about the 30th year. What does that mean? Some have tried to relate it to the uh, reign of Josiah the king in in understanding it. Uh, The fifth year is what we have here in verse 2. We know it's not King Jehoiakim's captivity. I think the simplest understanding of that 30th year, the, the, the phrase refers to the life of Ezekiel. And according to the book of Numbers, the priest would begin their service in their 30th year. And they would serve till age 50 according to what God prescribed there in Numbers. Now, the interesting thing is in David's day, that threshold seems to have been lowered to 25. But it appears it didn't change 30. But there was about a five-year apprenticeship that David was basically giving to the priest. From 25 to 30, the priest would serve as an apprentice to the priests who were in full duty from 30 to 50, it appears. And in doing that, they would learn what they were to do in serving the Lord in His temple or in His tabernacle. Now, Ezekiel, at age 30, has been five years in Babylon. He's not had the privilege of being involved in that apprenticeship, nor has he had the privilege at 30 of going about the temple of God. For a priest, I'm sure that was grievous. But if you think about it, in some measure, the Lord made up for it. Because Ezekiel, even as a priest, would not have been the high priest. He wouldn't have been able to go into the Holy of Holies at that time when the high priest could only go once a year. But there in Babylon, he sees the glory of God. He sees visions of God, something that as a priest in his ordinary duties, he would not have seen in Jerusalem. The mercies of God so great to him that he's able to see the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, may I say to you in a greater way than Ezekiel, you and I living this side of the cross, God has given us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We haven't seen him like Paul did on the Damascus Road. And yet, Paul says to God's people at Corinth, We 
beheld his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you remember those words? God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What blessed what blessedness is ours, brothers and sisters, that we could enjoy that. And in Ezekiel, by the way, I'm going to say to you as we look at chapter 1, thinking about it briefly, because we'd like to sweep our way through Ezekiel in some measure by way of overview, particularly around this theme of the glory of God. Ezekiel, I would say to you, sees that glory in the same face. Let's just follow through that thread in chapter 1. If you will, we won't read chapter 1 beginning at verse 4, but Ezekiel sees what some have considered very strange things. He sees a storm coming, a storm approaching, with lightning it appears, and and out of the the cloud, which has an orange, amber amber color. You know sometimes when lightning appears, that's how we see it. And out of that, he sees these creatures that are called cherubim here. They're marked by four faces. They're marked by wings and wheels, and those wheels in the middle of the wheels. But they're also marked by calf's feet. And... uh, they're just strange looking creatures to be honest with you some of y'all who were alive back in the 70's may remember the name of Eric Von Daniken Eric Von Daniken wrote a book Chariot of the Gods he uh, basically set forth the thesis in that, that that life on earth came from extraterrestrials you know when a man can't believe the Bible he'll look to all kinds of stuff to try to figure out how life evolved. I remember hearing the statement Carl Sagan had made about extraterrestrial life and it's amazing how evolutionists that's something they do big time is look for, they call it SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And Carl Sagan said if we could find out why they're here, maybe we could find out why we're here. I remember hearing Frank Peretti say he hopes that if they ever get a message from outer space that they'll say if we could find out why you're here we'll know why we're here (laughs) turn the tables on them but anyway extraterrestrial intelligence does exist the living God who's the God of all wisdom and he's given us his word there is an extraterrestrial intelligence but Von Daniken of course part of what he based the spaceship idea of extraterrestrials on was Ezekiel chapter 1 believe it or not because of those strange creatures that we find here in uh, uh, this prophet's vision. And and, and, uh, the idea is that the uh, intelligence is not supernatural, but superhuman, superterrestrial. Well, I'd say it's all of the above. It's beyond man, it's beyond this world, and it's beyond the natural because it's our great God. He displays His glory, and He does so in terms of a throne, but first of all, those who, as it were, are the guardians of the throne. In uh, Ezekiel 28, when the Prince of Tyre is addressed later in the oracles against the nations in Ezekiel, the Prince of Tyre is spoken of in a way that transcends him, just like the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, where Lucifer, you remember, the son of the morning is referred to. 
the one who says, I will set my throne above the throne of God. And it appears that what God by His Word is doing is speaking beyond the earthly king to the supernatural power that is exercising that king. We would know him as Satan, the adversary, the devil. But in the case of Ezekiel 28, it's said about the prince of Tyre, and again, I think the power behind him, you were in Eden. You were the anointed cherub that covered. You were perfect in your ways till iniquity was found in you. And it seems to be a reference to the fall of Satan. But what we have there is referred to as a cherub. And these cherubs, or cherubim as the Hebrew is, they would be angelic beings that are, if I can say it reverently, not your everyday angel. Now, in the book of Second Kings, it appears a, a nondescript everyday angel came down and struck 185,000 of Sennacherib's army. And I love the way the Bible, when they awoke, they were all corpses. Uh, now, some of the army survived, but uh, not enough to fight Jerusalem. They lifted the siege, and Sennacherib went back to his home of Assyria and ultimately was killed by two of his sons. But, but one angel, not identified in any super way, did that with an army of the uh, Assyrians. But these cherubim or exalters, I believe they're to be identified with those who are also called seraphim, as Isaiah describes them in Isaiah 6. But they're spoken of in ways that show their submission to God because over their head there's a sapphire pavement. It seems to represent the heavens, but over that is the throne of God. And these cherubim in their representation of God's chariot throne of glory, these cherubim are marked by cast feet, by wheels within a wheel, and then wings. Now, when... I think the idea of that is all has to do with transportation and the idea that God's throne can go anywhere God wants it to go because he's sovereign. As a, as a black school teacher from Philadelphia wrote, sovereign, the Lord my God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to do, when he wants to, how he wants to, because he's sovereign. God is God. That's a great song from a school teacher right there. Because that's what God's sovereignty is. None can stay his hand, as Nebuchadnezzar said, or say to him, what doest thou? And, and that's depicted here in the fact that these cherubim, they seem to represent the whole of the created order. They have faces. If you'll notice the, what, what Ezekiel records of them in verse 10, Ezekiel 1 again, verse 10, As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side. And they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. If if you consider their faces, uh, let's start at the back. The eagle, the king of the air, the king of the fowl, the ox. That's kind of the, 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 the... representative of the domesticated animals, what in Hebrew would be called the behemoth. And then we have the lion. He would be the hayah, the representative of the wild animals. And of course, he's the king of the jungle, we call him, the king of the beast. And then you have man. He's the crown of creation, according to Genesis 1. So as it were, all of the animate created life is represented by these cherubim. 
And they're all under the throne of God because all of life is under His control, His sovereignty, His dominion. But not only that, they have wings and wheels and calves' feet. Calves' feet are very sure, very steady. You know, we travel down the road, pass along a hillside covered with dew or covered with rain, and there those cows are, walking along, just munching, grazing. And it speaks of the steadiness of movement. But then we also have those wheels in the middle of a wheel. Now, of course, you know, uh, black spirituals have uh, really focused on that, the wheel in the middle of a wheel. But the idea of that is it's like a caster that if it rolls one way and gets stopped, it can continue to move. There's, there's nothing to impede its movement, in other words. But then there are also wings. When, when uh, our family, when I was young, our family went down to uh, Florida and we passed through the Santee Cooper area along 95 where Lake Marion is. And there was a museum at that time entitled Wings and Wheels. That was its name. And it was a transportation museum. And, and, and that's kind of the idea here about the wings and the wheels. It speaks of the fact, and the calf seat too, that God's throne, God's kingship, God's purpose can go wherever He wants it to go. It's not bound. The impediments that bind us, the impediments that, that, that hinder us, don't hinder Him. And, and so Ezekiel gives us this picture. and It's marked by glory. The, the cherubim are marked by the glory of God with the brightness of amber and lightning. Those things that mark the, the beginning of the vision in verse 4. The storm that appears. But, but also, as Ezekiel moves beyond the cherubim, we read this. If you'll notice there in the words of verse uh, 22, and the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. And it speaks of the wings of the cherubim then. If you'll notice verse 25, dropping down, and there was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood and had let down their wings. Here we have this pavement, as it were, that speaks so well of the cosmos, if you will. The, 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 the extended order of creation, the heavens that declare the glory of God. But over that firmament is a throne. Notice verse 26. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. As Ezekiel sees all of these images associated with the glory of God, he comes up to that pavement, to that firmament. The rekia is just a word that's used of the, of the heavens in Genesis chapter 1. He sees that firmament and over that is a throne. 
But the interesting thing is about what Ezekiel sees on the throne is he sees the likeness of a man above upon that throne. Now, now what is significant about that is back in Deuteronomy when God refers to how He appeared in Exodus to Moses and how the children of Israel saw the glory of God at Sinai in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. God says this plainly, You saw no similitude of man or beast or any creature. Why was that? Because God communicated the reality to His people. I am spirit. I'm not marked by flesh. I'm not marked by that which characterizes life as I've made an animate life. And, of course, the contrast is the gods of the heathen idols were those things. Or they were the stars. Or they were what was visible, what was tangible. But here God makes clear, you saw no similitude, you saw no likeness. But around a hundred years later, not quite, excuse me, a thousand years later, not quite, Ezekiel sees a man on the throne. Brothers and sisters, I dare not say we need to ask who that is. Because I believe Ezekiel sees the pre-incarnate Christ. The one who ultimately be glorified with our humanity. And it's there, as we said earlier, Ezekiel saw the glory of God in the same face that you and I see the glory of God in. He saw it before that incarnation. You and I see it after. You and I have beheld the glory of God in the face of His Son through the grace of God and the gospel, through the work of Christ's cross, through His ministry for us on our behalf as our high, great high priest, but also our prophet, priest, and king. We, we, we enjoy the blessing of God and we see the glory of God. And I'd say Ezekiel saw it in the same place. He saw that man on the throne. That man who was marked by glory. The appearance of fire upward. The appearance of fire downward from his loins. And that one is the one in whom we see the mercy of God. For as verse 28 says, there was a rainbow around the throne. That speaks of the mercy of God. Going back to Genesis chapter uh, 9. When God puts that bow in the cloud. In covenant mercy to this world and to humanity. To, uh, when does he makes covenant with Noah. And someone has pointed out that the bow, as we see it, is pointed upward. But the bow has no arrow. And the picture, I believe, is of the one who's our substitute, who sustained the wrath of God for us, Christ Jesus, who bore for us what we could not bear, what would have sunk us down to hell eternally, And that rainbow is around the throne in Ezekiel 1. In chapter 4 of Revelation, by the way, it's also a rainbow around the throne. When you get to chapter 20, the end of the book, there's no more rainbow around that great white throne then because it's a throne of judgment for all those who haven't been gathered in. Those who have part in the first resurrection, chapter 20, they won't be there, but the dead, great, and small who haven't had part in that will be. And there's no rainbow then around the throne. So we see then this vision that marks Ezekiel. And then this 
theme of God's glory that Ezekiel sees is something that is again threaded through the book and I want us now to think about it we, we see the we see the revelation of this glory but if you would I want you to think with me now about the removal of that glory and I want to ask you to look with me in chapters 8 through 11 there, there's so much in Ezekiel obviously that we couldn't cover but in trying to give this overview if you would notice with me what Ezekiel speaks of particularly here in the removal of the glory of God. Let's begin in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in the sixth year and the sixth month and the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon me. Then I beheld in low a likeness is the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins even downward fire, and from the appearance of his excuse me, and from his loins even upward is the appearance of brightness as the color of amber. And he put forth the form of a hand and took me by a lock of mine head and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north where was the seat of the image of jealousy which pro provoked to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. What Ezekiel saw back in chapter 1, he now sees that same glory vision, that same glory image, and particularly that same man, the man who was on the throne, the man who had appearance of fire upward and downward from his loins, he is the one now who comes as it were as Ezekiel's interpreter. And what God does is tells Ezekiel now to go into the area of the temple, its precincts and the temple itself, and he sees the abominations of Israel. As he sees those, Ezekiel describes them and God tells them as he shows them abomination after abomination. They become greater by degree and greater in severity. The things that were hateful to God that Israel was engaged in as a people. And as they were engaged in these things, God tells them, just notice verse 9 by way of one example. And he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do, that do here. And as, as Ezekiel goes in, digging into the wall of the temple, he sees all manner of, of, of idolatrous worship, creeping things, abominable beasts, idols, all of these things. He sees later women weeping for Tammuz in the, in the temple. All of these things that were going on, that, that had, in effect, in their abominable character, in their detestable and hateful character to our God, they were going to lead to the Lord leaving His place of worship. Notice what God says at the end of chapter 8 concerning this. Then he said unto me, verse 17, Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eyes shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. God in effect is saying... I've had it with their sin. As a result of that, Ezekiel speaks of these abominations and God then calls in chapter 9 for a man to go through the city and to mark those that are weeping over the sin and abomination that's taking place in Judah 
And after that, he sends executioners to go and strike down those who don't bear the mark. Those who don't have that mark and the, the uh, Tau, some believe it was, the, the, the Hebrew letter that's used to speak of that. Uh, but they, they have this mark and those who don't are objects of wrath and objects of God's judgment. But as Ezekiel speaks of this, notice what he says in the words of verse 3 of chapter 9. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the chariot whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen which had the writer's acorn by his side. This is when God tells him to mark him. Notice what has happened with regard to this glory of God that Ezekiel has seen. He says it's gone up from the chariot. In other words, the chariot throne, as it were, is, is rising and it goes to the threshold of the house. Now what's a threshold? place where a door is. What, God, what is God doing? He's on His way out. He's going to leave the building. And as God does that, Ezekiel sees further uh, picture of this in regard to what is happening. Drop with me over please to chapter 10 and, and notice verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that is above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of the throne. And then if you would drop to verse 3. Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the cherubim's wing was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when He speaketh. Now, initially there in chapter 9, the, the, the glory was going to the threshold. The threshold of what? What we would know is the Holy of Holies in the holy place. Now, in chapter 10, the glory is going to the threshold of the... Uh, excuse me, it's going to the inner, it's in the inner court, which would have been outside the Holy of Holies. God's left that residence, as it were, and gone to it. And now he's going to the threshold or toward the threshold of the house. In other words, the place that is going to be the place of departure where there would be entrance by the people. If you will, drop down with me quickly to chapter 10, verse 16. And when the cherubims went, the wheels went by them. And when the cherubims lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also turned not from beside them. When they stood, these stood. Reference is very much similar to chapter 1. And when they were lifted up, these lifted up themselves also. For the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them. And everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was over, above them, over them above. Here we see the movement again. Then chapter 9, he's gone to the door of, if you will, the holy place. Now he's gone to the inner court and he's going to the threshold there. Now he's at the gate of the east, the east gate of the house, which is the place of entry into the temple precincts at large. The movement then, in effect, God is leaving his house like a husband who's walked in on an unfaithful wife in his own residence. 
And he, she, she hears the door slam. Why? He's left. He's gone. Why? Because of the wickedness. Well, that's what in effect has happened here. The sin of Israel, God has said, they're abominations. And God's left the house. But, but not only that, if you'll follow into chapter 11, please, and notice the words there that we find in verses 22 and 23. As God speaks again of Israel's abominations, but also thank God of His purpose of grace, we read this in verse 22. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. So the glory of God has not only left His temple, the Holy of Holies, not only left the temple precincts, but now He's left the city. And He's on what we would know as the Mount of Olives. On the east side of the city, outside of the city. And it's a picture of sin and rebellion and, and, and what sin causes for when we think about what Romans 3.23 says. For all have sinned and done what? Come short of the glory of God. What have we missed by our sin? The glory of God. The greatest thing in all the world. The thing for which God's heart Himself beats. His glory. We've missed it. And that's what Ezekiel sees. And I'm sure as a priest, Ezekiel would have been overwhelmed with a sense of sorrow about that. But I need to quickly point out this is not the end of the story, thank God. If you would, turn back, turn over with me to chapter 43 of Ezekiel. And I realize we're jumping over a lot. But such is the case. I want us to see particularly this theme. In chapter 43, verse 1, we read this in Ezekiel. Afterward, He brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. That's the gate from which the Lord's glory departed back in chapter 11. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and His voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with His glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. That's chapters 8 through 11. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar. That's chapter 1. And I fell upon my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. The same way of departure has become the way of reentry through the east gate from the Mount of Olives, the east gate of the city, into the east gate of the temple, and into the inner court, and then the glory of God overwhelming the place, as it were. Much like when Moses, remember, dedicated the tabernacle in Exodus 40, and the glory of God so overwhelmed that Moses wasn't able to go in. When, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the, the glory of the Lord so overwhelmed the house that, that uh, the priest couldn't minister. I like what one minister that we heard said he uh, was preaching up in Lexington there and he, he made the point it's as though God said you can't admire my glory like I can admire my glory just let me do it by myself brothers and sisters man couldn't get in on it God was looking at his glory and God said I like what I see well here God's glory fills the house God's glory returns and at the end of the book of Ezekiel, chapter 48, verse 35, the name of the city is the Lord is there. Now how did that happen? Well, in chapter 36, we read of what God says He will do. God says in verse 25, I'll sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness. And it's plural in the Hebrew. From all your uncleannesses will I cleanse you. 
and all your idols. And then God says, I'll take out of you a stony heart and I'll put in you a heart of flesh. And you'll walk in my ways. That work of grace that God will do for Israel is the work of grace that every sinner needs to experience. And by the grace of God, we can experience. By the grace of God, you and I who know Him have experienced it. And because of that, the glory of God is able to return to our lives as one day it will return to His world. You see, the good news of the Gospel tells of how though we have missed His glory through our sin and rebellion, in Jesus Christ, the glory of God returns to His people. And ultimately, it will be something that comes back to this planet. I like the way Maltby Bob Babcock put it in that final stanza of This is my Father's world. Some of you may remember it. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. To that we say amen. And I believe Ezekiel is going to add his amen to it too, brothers and sisters. Thank you so much.